Welcome to Eating in Isolation, a talk show about mental health in the food industry. I'm Sue Chan. I'm Sarah Solomon. Today we're going to be talking about attachment theory. (laughs) One of my favorite topics in psychology. So fascinating. And I think when I first learned about my attachment style, it blew my mind and made me understand why I do the things that I do in romantic relationships. But a big reason why we're talking about attachment theory on this podcast Um, about mental health in the food industry is that it's fair to say that your attachment style also affects not only your personal life, but also your work life. Yeah. I mean, really any relationship you have. So that can certainly be a work relationship, especially because in the kitchen, you're like family. So it's, it can be quite intimate. Yeah. And I feel like also in restaurants, boundaries tend to be very unclear and undefined and I think that attachment theory really challenges your boundaries with other people and kind of puts those under a microscope. Um, And also it seems like attachment theory is very much related to your self-worth, which um, seems to be a common pattern and theme that we talk about a lot on the show. Yeah. Self-worth and safety. The fear that comes in when your attachment style gets activated can really give the sense of I'm not safe. So we can talk about that more, but- Well, so what is attachment theory? This is a theory that was created by John Bowlby in, I believe, the early 1950s. And it was through observation of children and the way they attach to their primary caregiver. And to sum it up, it's really the way a child feels secure in a relationship based on the experience they have from their caregiver. So there are three different types of attachment style, and each one is indicative of the care you received from your parent. The first one is secure attachment. We'll start there because it's such a beautiful unicorn. <laughs> and I was like, where are all this securely attached people? <laughs> they, um, they are hard to come by, although they do exist. And... <laughs> What secure attachment looks like is a child receiving very consistent care, having their emotional and physiological needs met in a way that lets them know they are safe um, and that they can explore the world safely. So as adults, it looks like pretty consistent intimacy, you know, very little anxiety in your relationships. It feels like the way that you relate to people is fairly easy, for lack of a better word. Not that life is easy, but relationally, you're not experiencing unreasonable fear. Like there's rational reason. Yeah. For it. And from what I know of secure people, not that I know that many, I feel like, oh, nor have I dated any. It's like in, in a romantic relationship, the better you get to know them, the more your love grows. And it's in this very healthy direction totally. as opposed to like immediately falling in love, head over heels, you know, overnight, which is not very normal because you don't know the person. So how could you be head over heels in love with someone? So it feels like a much healthier kind of trajectory of like getting into a relationship. Yeah, I would say the same way that anything healthy and stable happens. It happens slowly. It happens sustainably. It's not on a roller coaster, whether it's in a romantic relationship or again in the workplace or even jumping into a new project. The best way to approach it is slow and steady. And yet if you've been raised in an environment where things are unpredictable and chaotic, 
that's not going to be the way you approach things. That's not going to be what feels comfortable to you. Right. Which leads us to the other forms of attachment, <laughs> which are um, anxious attachment is the next, which is when a child receives inconsistent care. So they have an unpredictable kind of experience. They don't know when their needs are going to get met. They may have experienced some emotional neglect or even abuse. But typically it looks like the parent's mood is unpredictable in some way, or the parent's availability is unpredictable in some way. And the subsequent result is a feeling of very intense fear. Like I'm in danger, which creates a lot of clinginess and fear of needs not getting met. And that's what it looks like in an adult anxious attachment as well. It looks like someone desperately clinging to feel close to someone because they don't feel safe otherwise. Yeah. It almost feels like a, like a heightened sensitivity to any little thing that your partner does, right? It's like, if they don't text back immediately, if they're not available to hang out when you ask them to, it's like you start building the case for them not loving you, leaving you, not wanting to be with you. Absolutely. And then the way it looks in the workplace is very similar, which is if my colleague is in a mood or my boss is in a mood, my immediate thought is I'm in danger. They're going to leave me. They're going to fire me. I'm not doing enough. And you see typically kind of a hypervigilant reaction. Um, what it might look like on a day to day is maybe constantly checking messages to see, to feel closer, to feel connected, but also to feel like I'm doing enough to stay close. And then what's the third? Avoidant attachment, which is a child's experience, similarly not getting their needs met, but their response to it is actually to believe that their needs are never going to get met. And so they disengage and they feel like, actually, you can't give me any of what I need. Only I can give me what I need. It's dangerous for me to rely on you for anything. And you know, seeing my sensitivities and my emotions is dangerous. I don't want you to see it because you can't take care of me. And so what that looks like in adults, avoidant attachment is someone who, when things get emotionally intense, they disengage. They'll go into uh, shutdown mode, which I think you know, we've all experienced either we shut down or we've been on the other end of someone shutting down. And that's a safety mechanism. It's, I don't need anyone and I'm not going here because it's dangerous. Similarly, you would see this in the workplace as a lot of times someone going, I'm the smartest one in the room and I don't need to depend on anyone else and I don't need your help and I'm not going to wait around for you to step in and support me. I'm fine. I got it. Is it possible to have, because I think in romantic relationships, I am definitely anxiously attached. Mm -hmm. Even though I feel like as I get older, I've been seeing more avoidant tendencies pop up here and there. But I guess in work, I would say I'm anxiously attached. But can you be one in one part of your life and another in another part of your life? Yes, it can be quite disorganized. I'm curious, though, how do you know you're anxiously attached? What happens for you? Yeah. Oh, gosh, this is um, very vulnerable to share. Um, I'm just a worrier and just an anxious person in general. I, I, I think it stems from, so when I was a little kid, I was born in Taiwan. My parents had me in Taiwan and then they went to grad school. And so from zero in, in America, and so from zero to five, my grandparents raised me and my parents would go back to Taiwan about once a year. Cause you know, 
tickets to Taiwan from the States were really expensive. So sometimes it was, it would only be my mother. Um, occasionally my dad would also join, but for the most part, my parent, my grandparents were my primary caretakers and my parents kind of came in and out of my life like every summer. And, you know, I, 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 my parents tell me that actually every time that they would come back, it would take me a little bit of time to like get used to them and acclimate to them as, you know, my caretakers. And then, you know, soon after I acclimated, they would then leave and it would just be the cycle you're in, you're out. Um, and then when I turned five, my parents took me from Taiwan and brought me to the States. And I think that that was definitely very difficult, right? Cause they took me from my grandparents who were my primary caretakers and then brought me to America. And not only was I not with my primary caretakers, but then also I was like in a foreign country with, you know, with a different language and a different culture and just everything was completely different. It was very scary. I remember when they first dropped me off at preschool, I had a very, very bad reaction to that and just refused to stay in preschool. And just, I mean, it was, it, it was not good. I mean, eventually I acclimated because I think young kids do acclimate mm-hmm. quickly, but yeah, but it was hard. And, you know, I, understand why my parents made the sacrifices they did. It was so that I could have a better life. I know that in hindsight, and I know that intellectually, but I think that experience very much affected how I relate to people. And there is always an anxiety that people are going to leave. And I think that inconsistency too of them coming in and out of my life, you know, affected me as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And well, I just have a lot of compassion for little Sue and the I mean, even thinking about it kind of like makes me tear up. And I don't know if I'm actually like, because this was something I learned very recently. Um, A friend had introduced me to the book Attached, which I highly recommend. It's like a really great breakdown of attachment theory. And once I read that, things started clicking. It was like, oh my goodness, it was this experience that influenced the way in which I relate to romantic partners in a major way and also to my work, you know? I just have a lot of anxiety in general. And I I guess I only very recently realized that it had to do with um, how I was relating to my parents and my primary caregivers. Yeah, and that's the first step. And I'm, I'm just curious, how do you know when your anxious attachment has been activated What do you experience? Yeah, I mean, I have been working on it, so I'm definitely getting a lot better. But when I was younger, you know, the age old, like you text someone and they don't text you back for three hours and you're just like ruminating those whole three hours, like what's happening, what's happening, they must be cheating on me. Like my brain would go to the craziest places, you know, it was never like, they are working and they are busy and that's why they haven't responded. It was, they must be fucking someone else. And, you know, (laughs) you know, like it was just like literally (laughs) it was zero to 90. It was never like, maybe they, I don't know, their phone ran out of batteries and they went on a hike or I don't even know. It was, it just was always worst case scenario or just like, you know, when I was very young, I definitely do not do this anymore, but like checking people's text messages, like checking people who I was dating's text messages and just obsessing over every little thing that they did. And like, oh, is that because he just went and saw that person? Just these like crazy paranoid thoughts. I, I think also perhaps I was dating the wrong people because I don't always have those feelings. I think when dating you know, secure people who are a little uh-huh. bit healthier for me, but, but yeah. I just want to say that it's yeah. not crazy <laughs> given your experience. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, so I, not I, only are we not alone, uh, <laughs> we are not crazy. <laughs> it really makes a lot of sense yeah. that your mind would go to worst case scenario, given that in your 
upbringing, you experienced such, and again, we know your parents were doing the best they could, but it was inconsistent and it felt dangerous at the time. And so now, or recently, your coping mechanism is to try to make sense of it and try to control it. And that means coming up with a narrative and one that, you know, that helps you to feel like you have some grasp on it. But why does that narrative have to be so negative and Mm -hmm. so like paranoid? And yeah, like, I mean, that must be just my personality, right? No, 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 no. Okay. I would say that it is a result of feeling like you're in danger. So, you know, I, I was asking about what happens too, because I'm curious if you're aware of what happens in your body, because typically for people who've experienced abandonment and have anxious attachment, they really feel like I'm going to die. Like the feeling inside is the very worst type of threat and they will cling to anything or grasp at anything that helps them to feel closer. So saying, oh, maybe his phone ran out of battery and he's not available doesn't allow you to get closer saying he's cheating on me and I'm going to go yell at him about it allows you to engage with him emotionally so that you can feel closer. Wow. That is a really unhealthy way to get close to someone. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it's understandable. It really is. And is it because that's the only way in which you know to get close to someone is in a negative way because of the way that people, your caregivers were relating to you essentially in a negative way? That's a really good question. I would say that it's probably, yeah, a default way and you haven't learned a tool or an alternative way yet. I mean, it's why I love my work because I really believe that everyone's doing the best they can and we can do better. And that is by learning different ways to cope and that there isn't just this one loop that kind of essentially to really answer your question, when you go, oh, he's cheating on me or lying to me or my boss is going to fire me or my friend hates me. You're confirming a belief about yourself that you learned from your caregiving when you were little, which is everyone I care about is going to let me down. So is it essentially a fear of abandonment, whereas maybe avoidant attachment is a fear of intimacy? The equal fear of not getting a need met, they're just the two opposite ways to confirm that belief. So aside from a securely attached person who's walking around feeling like, yeah, my needs can get met and I'm safe to explore. And I believe that people have my best interests in mind. That's a securely attached person walking around. People who have anxious and avoidant attachment are walking around like my needs can't get met. No one can take care of me in a way that makes me feel safe. Here, I'll prove it. And an anxious person will prove it by saying, you don't love me enough. You're lying to me. You're not showing up for me you're going to fire me. And an avoidant person will say, you'll never understand me. And every time you try to get close, you're actually going to suffocate me. Wow. They're two sides of the same coin. Now I know, so I have dated uh, many avoidant people. Ditto. (laughs) If you read the book Attach, (laughs) you will know about the anxious avoidant dance that happens (laughs) when anxious people are in a relationship with avoidant people. Can you explain that to our audience a little bit? I'd actually love to hear about your experience with the anxious avoidant (laughs) dance. I think it's much more interesting. So my last relationship, if you could even call it a relationship, was like a two-year on-again, off-again nightmare where 
we would be together. And then every time we got close, he would tell me that he wanted an open relationship. You know, obviously that'd be really hurtful. I try to convince him otherwise. And then I would give up and, you know, start dating other people. And then he'd hear through the grapevine, through my friend, our mutual friends that I was dating someone else. And then he'd start talking about how I was the one. And I like, he wants to get back together with me. And the yeah. sign that that's not true is you never tell that to your friends. You're supposed to just tell that to me. You know, you're not <laughs> supposed to tell that to my friends. If you really believe that, you're supposed to just come to me and tell me that. Right. But And so, of course, that would get back to me. And you know what? Thank God that some of my friends who love me dearly, some of them just wouldn't even tell me mm-hmm. that that had happened because they just knew what this person was up to. But yeah, so they would... Then, you know, I was also in the one and they would chase me and they would reach out to me and try to win me back. And then we would do the loop all over again. And this happened. Oh my goodness. It definitely lasted two years. Finally, after two years, I was just like, I can't, I had, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, And you know what? The craziest thing is I almost felt like by the end, it almost became like a competition to Mm -hmm. like win him over. Yeah. And it wasn't even like, I like lost sight of what I was fighting for. You know, it was almost like I just needed to win him over to, I guess, maybe prove that I was worthy of love um, to myself, even though I wasn't even necessarily in love with him. And quite honestly, the way in which we were relating was very toxic and not happy and fun. Like it was not love at all, even when we got back together. And yet I kept on I don't know, trying to fight for this. And it was almost like it was a competition that I just had to win and not so much that it was because I was actually in love with him. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because when you're fighting to survive, when you just want to be close with someone because that feels like living, that feels like safety, you're not really seeing, do I actually want to be with this person? Is this healthy for me or compatible or a match, all you're going is, I need this for safety. That's the huge kind of cloud that you're seeing everything through. And it sounds like your dance, and I've really been there, <laughs> was one of, it's it's classic. It's a classic. Oh, we even went to couples therapy at the end, mm-hmm. which I mean, like we literally just made it through one session. We didn't even, we scheduled a second session, didn't even make it to the second session. He was even just like, like, no, like abort right now. Like, like he was like, I've seen this a thousand times. Yeah. Let me tell you, this is not end well. Like how many ways can I tell you? <laughs> just listen to me from this one way. It will not end well. I like this yeah. therapist. <laughs> he was just like, don't even try. He's like, do not even try. Cause he heard both, you know, both our stories. We were in the session <laughs> together. He heard both our stories and he's like, yeah, don't even go there. Like, this is not, this is never going to work. I, I will put money on this. This is never going to work. Yeah. I love a red flag bouquet, though. Like, <laughs> I was like, red flag? <laughs> Tell me more. <sighs> I, yeah, you're, yeah, it's a classic dance where you really do lose the plot of the story because you're so busy chasing to get close and he's retreating. And then, you know, avoidance and anxious people are, attracted to each other because it creates such a high chemistry. And so when the avoidant feels like they're not being pursued by the anxious, they want to have that experience. They want to confirm their beliefs too, which is you can't meet my needs. So if you pull away, they'll come to you. And that's the dance. Wow. Interesting. So 
I think sometimes I feel when, you know, you win over an avoidant, there's a high. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the avoidant is also experiencing a high from my love for them. Yes. To have their beliefs confirmed, which is no one will ever understand me. I can't let anyone close to me. So come close, come close, come close. You, you came too close and then you experience the wall. You get pushed away and then you stay away and then they come close. They lure you in. And I don't mean to make a, a avoidant people sound like the culprit. Oh, I was definitely manipulative in the situation too. Like yeah. I was not an angel. It was, I mean, <sighs> it's hard to not feel like the other person was the culprit, <laughs> but they do have deep, dark trauma as well. And a better place to operate from is to have empathy for him. Yeah. Again, they really are two sides of the same coin and- If you can see that and first and foremost, have compassion for yourself and where your fear comes from and really know it's not crazy. There's a reason you feel this way and it's not effective to respond to it in this way. You can also find compassion for the person who equally feels their fear and ineffectively pulls away. And you can feel like I can understand why they're doing this and it's not working and it's not what I want. I want someone who's going to stay put when I want to get close to them. I want someone who's going to meet my needs. I wanted to bring it back to the, the workplace in the kitchen because this happens in other dynamics as well, where we are all feeling like, Are you going to confirm what I deeply believe, which is that no one understands me, no one can make me feel safe, no one is reliable, and we really owe it to each other to try to push through those feelings and offer a different experience and, and show up as our best selves, even though it's hard. It requires skills. I mean, once again, it's like it's tied to your self-worth and also the narrative Mm -hmm. that you're telling yourself about yourself and what you deserve. Yeah. The narrative you're telling yourself about yourself and about the world. Everyone's going to let me down. No one is safe. I also have a hard time asking for help Mm -hmm. in the workplace and I'm very independent when it comes to my work. So that's why I'm like, I feel like I have a little bit of anxious and also avoidant tendencies in both my romantic and my professional life. I'm like starting to see that. I don't know if it's me coping with the struggles that I've had with one and then therefore developing the symptoms of another or some other attachment situation that's happening. Well, I think when we haven't experienced secure attachment, it's actually scary because it's foreign. So we kind of have to get used to that idea, you know, as also someone who was anxiously attached and has done a lot of work around that, you know, finding a partner who finally was going to be stable and show up for me was weird. (laughs) You know, I was like, huh? Like, you know, I almost wanted to like poke him and be like, you're not going anywhere. Like what, you know, how am I supposed to trust this? And I would say the same in the workplace, you know, to really believe that you can trust people and not the hard part is that not everyone's trustworthy. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it's actually assessing who are safe people. How do I slowly build those relationships so that I can trust them? It always takes time, which is so hard because we're impatient and we want immediate results, but that typically doesn't get us actually get our needs met. So can an avoidant person and an anxious person actually have a healthy relationship. It's funny. I, at the other night I met the, this couple and, um, 
it's funny. She literally started talking about attachment theory um, because she was explaining her whole romantic history with this guy and he was very avoidant and she was very anxious. And then they came to realization that they both had this issue and worked on it and they actually are now seemingly really happy. So I'm curious, can you overcome this? Is it worth it or should we just all find secure people? (laughs) You just answered the question, right? If both people are willing to work on it and know their part and make those changes, absolutely. I wouldn't be a couples counselor if I didn't really believe that that was possible because I would say, I don't know, 70% of the people who come in uh, for couples counseling are dealing with an attachment issue for sure. And usually it is one's anxious and one's avoidant. Although sometimes you'll get just one of those and either way we have to work through it. So if I didn't believe that that was possible and I've just said abandoned ship at all times, that wouldn't be very hopeful. Right. And if two people are coming in and no one's owning their part and no one's willing to say, yeah, this is my problem. Here's where it comes from. Here's how I am hoping to heal or change. Then, yeah, it is a lost cause. It's not going to work. So, what is some of the advice that you give these couples who, you know, one is anxious, one is avoidant? Yes. And not just couples, but right. because people who are dealing with this kind of anxiety and fear of, like, I have people in my life who make a mistake at work and are immediately terrified about getting fired. I definitely have that or had that. I mean, I've matured, I've done a lot of work and mm-hmm. um, have matured a lot, but I used to, in my old job, constantly think I was getting fired. I thought it was because I was projecting my desire to leave onto the situation. And so that's why I like thought I was getting fired, but maybe it had to do with my attachment. Well, issues. it could be both. I mean, I would want to leave if I didn't feel safe either. Right. And sometimes it's the environment and the working relationship. And then sometimes it is just the belief system that you're carrying. And that's the work is to figure out what's happening in the present and what is historical. And so to answer your question, I would say, first and foremost, understand what's happening. So understand your attachment style. Do you shut down? Do you pull away? What do you believe? Or are you anxious? Do you cling? Do you become terrified and suspicious. Once you can name it, then try to understand where it comes from. What in your upbringing, in your childhood led to this experience? We don't always have, you know, you have a very clear narrative. It makes a lot of sense. We don't always have that clear of a narrative. And we can at least say, you know, I know that at some point I had the experience of not getting my needs met and have been seeing the world through that lens ever since and have been getting into relationships that confirm that belief. The next step is checking the facts. So this is when I talk about what is happening in the here and now. How can I check the facts about the present moment? And if the facts add up, like, yeah, this person is doing this and this and this, and they are lying, or I am going to get fired, or you know, this happened you know, that's good instincts. That's not a problem. But if you're adding up the facts and they don't really add up to I'm in danger or there's a problem here, then it's knowing that it's historical. And there's a saying in the therapy world, if we're hysterical, it's historical. So just know if you're, whoa, explain that. (laughs) Like if you're getting activated, if you're noticing that you're having an intense reaction to something, there's a pretty good chance it's 
from the past. Again, if the facts aren't adding up, you're not in an immediate danger. Like if your reaction to the situation is larger than what has happened to you because you just met the person or because what they did is actually not that bad, then it's probably on you. <laughs> oh, historical, historical experience. experience where that's yes. being activated. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Like it's your the problem, same way, not theirs. Yeah. Right. The same way that you said, uh, you know, I was having these crazy reactions. Right. Another way of saying that is you were having a reaction from based on your history, jumping to conclusions, not necessarily based on the facts. Right. But it feels really important to also validate facts when they're right. there. This is not a black and white thing. <laughs> like it's not mutually exclusive no. in that you could date someone who's avoidant and who is a shithead um, and treating you badly and cheating on you when they're not answering text messages. And it's not, you know, or it could be an avoidant who's not doing that, but because they are avoidant, they're activating these things. So yeah, it's it's not mutually exclusive, but also just being cognizant of like the level of what's happening to you versus how you're reacting to it. And, and yes. And I would say that the thing that helps most is being able to take a breath, slow down, observe your thoughts, see if you can make some connections and then see if there's an alternative way to respond in the moment that isn't necessarily from your fear place or your protective shutdown place. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do this thing where I don't know if this is healthy, where you like text the person and then instead of sitting around waiting for them to text back, I just like hide my phone and don't, I try not to look at it for like an hour. <laughs> does that help? <laughs> it does help for sure. But also like, I feel like a teenager doing that because it just seems so immature. I'm like a grown ass adult and doing this, but sure. <laughs> It's not immature. And, uh, you know, maybe one of the coping mechanisms you can use is saying to yourself, I'm safe no matter what. Sometimes you need to hide your phone in order to yes. save space or to not use your phone or whatever, whether it's like, you know, hide the cigarettes so you don't smoke them. Yeah, I guess sometimes you got to hide the phone for it to not like activate you. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. You know, I would say similarly, if someone is finding themselves in that dance, that attachment dance, Try to limit your contact with that person if possible. That is really helpful because the more exposure you have to them, the more activated you're going to be. And out of sight, out of mind is very effective. Wow, that is a much better strategy. Yep, sure is. <laughs> I'm curious about protest behavior, yeah. which my understanding of it is that both avoidant and anxious people sometimes when they're activated will uh, have protest behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you already kind of named it a little bit, which is the way that one responds when they're activated. So an anxious person will accuse someone of cheating on them or get really jealous. Or sometimes what it may look like is actually, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. This is definitely something I have done. When I feel so upset emotionally, I'll just kind of curl into a ball and want someone to read my mind and take care of me instead of being able to say, I'm feeling upset right now. I need a hug or I need some comfort. I'll wait for someone to read my mind and will just curl into a little ball hoping that you know, my needs will get met. So that can look like a protest behavior too. Like, I'm just going to go away and like, I hope you come find me. Right, right, right. <laughs> Instead of 
articulating what it is that you need. And I, I've heard this from my married friends. It's like they learn that they you can't read the other person's mind. No. Like you just need to tell your partner what it is that you need in the moment. Yeah, which is really a lot easier said than done if you've had the experience of not having your needs met your whole life. You know, to believe that you can just tell someone what you need and that they're actually going to give it to you is a huge leap from what you've ever known. And it's probably scarier to ask for it and not get it than like just not asking for it and not getting it because it's almost like that feels like worse rejection. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And similarly for an avoidant, I guess the protest behavior would look like the shutting down and maybe even stonewalling. Like, I'm not responding to you. You're too much. You're needy. Your demands are too high. They're unreasonable. And it's a total unwillingness to meet someone emotionally. And maybe in the extreme version, actually like cheating on someone to... Totally. Right? That's, yeah. a, that's a very real possibility. Yeah. As a way to be like, oh, this is how far away I am from you. I'm going to go cheat on... This is how much I don't need you. This is how much you're pushing me away. Look what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I feel so aware of when I have anxious behavior that it seems almost insane to not be aware of it. You know, like now in hindsight, it seems insane that there was a period in my life where I was not aware that that's what I was doing. But now that I am aware, yeah, it just feels, um, it feels like such a much better place to be. Yeah, I, it is. And, you know, We have to have compassion for the younger self who didn't have that awareness or tools. And also you were doing the best you could, as was I. And when someone really feels danger, like really feels like, oh my God, I'm not safe here. Sometimes we dissociate. So when you're dissociated, you're, you're, you're kind of going like, I'm out. I can't be here anymore. This is far too risky. I feel threatened. And in that case, you're not going to be aware because you've essentially left the present and left your body in order to preserve your safety. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think a lot of people probably turn to like drugs and sex and shopping and gambling to disassociate. Yes. Which is like a whole nother layer. Yeah, that's the avoidance. Right. For sure. Well, one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, I think my anxious attachment style has maybe made me better at my job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Because, you know, anxiety can sometimes fuel better work or just more attentiveness to work, but there must be another way Mm -hmm. to get there, right? (laughs) Yes, I believe there is. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So the very sophisticated coping mechanisms that you have created in order to feel safe have really worked for you in a lot of ways. So it's the point at which they're no longer working for you. So for example, if checking your text messages every 15 seconds or your emails to see if your boss has responded to the email yet, or asking your friend, are you mad at me? (laughs) Those cross the line between this is no longer serving, this is going beyond making me feel safe and moving into aversive behavior. And I don't feel good when I do it. And the person in my life doesn't feel good when they do it either, when they are on the other end of it either. So what are alternatives? Again, first, slowing down. 
noticing that you're going to this place and clinging to something to kind of soothe you. And then there are a number of things that can alternatively soothe you. I would say for anxious attached people, having boundaries is really, really helpful. So as it relates to technology, have hours that you don't look at your phone or don't check your email so that you're not getting, like I said, out of sight, out of mind. So you're not getting that hit of what's coming and am I in danger and can I make myself feel better in this? You just go like, no, this is not the time that I engage in that. This is my time that I just take care of myself. So boundaries are really helpful. Similarly, if there are people or circumstances that make you feel activated in that way, boundaries. As stay much, away from them. <laughs> stay away as much as possible, you know, but some, you know, that's not always an option. Right. Certainly it's not always an option and that makes it really hard. So, you know, you do your best as far as how you engage. But if it is an option to not take that, uh, option yeah. is just like, it's so cruel to yourself. Yeah. And honestly, it blew my mind when my therapist suggested it to me many years ago. Like, maybe you just want to totally stop talking to this person. And I was like, huh, (laughs) that's a possibility and that's going to help. And then sure enough, I had a completely different experience and, you know, I had to get off social media too. That was important for me in order to heal. One thing I've observed in my friendships and, and, you know, in thinking back to how I related to friends growing up, I moved around a lot as a kid. And I think my upbringing from zero to five with my parents coming in and out of my life, moving around a lot as a kid, I think that when it came to friends, because I had to constantly make new friends Mm. every, it was like every four years we would move, you know? So every four years I would have to make a new set of friends. I mean, it it definitely gave me a superpower of like being very social and being able to make friends really quickly and easily and just having like a laissez-faire way about like, you know, relating to other people, which, you know, makes it a lot easier to get to know more people. But at the same time, I think the negative part is that like, I think I sometimes struggle with getting super close Mm. to friends, you know, like I have a lot of friends, but you can't get close to all of them. Right. And it's interesting that I've almost put up this boundary in my friendships that, I mean, it's obviously I have super close friends who I can rely on, but I don't know. I I can't tell if it's like, that's like healthy or unhealthy or if I'm disassociated or if like I've severed some sort of like emotion that I can ever have with another friend, you know, because of that upbringing and moving around a lot. Yeah. That's, uh, I think a great thing to reflect on. And I would say that maybe we want to clarify Having boundaries for the most part is really about protecting yourself and taking care of yourself in a way that is self-loving and self-respecting. When we put a wall up or we keep people at arm's length, that is more than a boundary. That is from a place of fear and self-preservation, which if you're feeling like no one really knows me, like I know all these people, but they don't really know me. Like I haven't really let someone in. Yeah, that might be something to explore. What am I afraid of? Is there a person who I feel that I can really open up to and be safe with? You know, that's what therapy is really great for. If anyone has struggled with feeling safe and opening up to someone, a therapist is the perfect person to have a new experience with safely. 
especially if you have a great rapport with them. And I highly recommend finding someone that you feel a safe connection with, not just anyone, any therapist. It saddens me when I have friends who try therapy and they go to one therapist and they give up because I think a therapist is so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to, I think, keep on meeting new therapists until you land on one that you yeah. have just like a good rapport with because just like any other human in your life, it takes time to find the person that you're going to get along with. It's like dating. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like don't give up just because the first therapist you meet is not you know, your cup of tea. As you said, we're not supposed to let everyone into our inner world. Esther Perel has named intimacy as into me, you see, you know, and not everyone gets, it's a privilege to be let in to your vulnerable side and not everyone gets that privilege. So it does mean kind of being mindful of who's around you that has shown you or been consistent or provided some sort of safety that lets you know, yeah, this person can come a little closer and doing that incrementally. I think that's the boundary I need to set up in my romantic relationships. I think I have a tendency to be open too quickly in my romantic relationships, which I don't know how that ties into anxious attachment. Mm-hmm. If it's like some sort of some sort of strategy I'm using to like get closer to them by mm-hmm. being more intimate and more open. But that's something that I've seen in myself is that in romantic relationships, I think I just am too open too quickly and like, don't let people jump through enough hoops and pass all the tests before I'm open, actually show them true intimacy. Right. Except not tests, right? Right. More negative. (laughs) (laughs) That's negative and manipulative, which is not what we want to do. Yes, you're right. More like, can this person show up for me? And really for you and for most of us consistently, are you consistently there. Not when it benefits them or not when they want something out of me or not when I'm unavailable. Yes, Yes. exactly. You are in a way confirming your deeper belief. So first, of course you want to get closer to them. Of course you jump in because feeling close makes you feel safe. Especially when they are making it a safe space. Yes. You know, that's the most confusing part. Yes. Well, they seem to be making it a safe space because they're jumping in with you, right? Which is familiar. And then what also becomes familiar is someone pulling away, someone being inconsistent. So that is the cycle. It's a blueprint in you. It's what you are naturally searching for because little Sue, that was how she learned that people relate to each other. And I watched the Oscars last night and the someone giving an acceptance speech, he thanked his mother and he clearly loved her so much. And she had been a really positive force in his life. And he said, thank you for giving me my factory settings. And I was like, yes, (laughs) that is what we're talking about. That you're, what you experienced as a kid, those are your factory settings. And if they're solid, great. You're going to have that secure experience. And if they're not, we've got to reset your settings. Right. And so how much of your attachment style is nature versus nurture? Is it all nurture? Like, can you Of course, it's always a combination of both, as we know, but just curious how much of it is nurture versus nature. Yeah, it's predominantly nurture because it is based on the care environment that you receive. And some of us come into this world a little more sensitive. We're genetically predisposed to be more sensitive. And so we call it the biosocial model. So if you come into the world this way and you get a little bit of neglect, 
you might have a stronger reaction to that than someone who comes in with less sensitivity. And that could be, you know, the difference between extreme anxious attachment and maybe something closer to secure or something more on the mild side. What are, I mean, you've, you've listed some of the tools and mm-hmm. activities that you can do to become more secure, but anything else that we can do for ourselves? You know, I find journaling to be really effective because when we start to experience these factory settings, these defaults, sometimes we feel, as you said, crazy. And when we can reflect and ask the right questions, like, why am I feeling this way? What specific, what triggered it or what pushed my button? You know, how is this familiar to me? What am I noticing in my body? That can allow you to form a narrative that can help you to differentiate between the reality of the present and the history that you're reacting to. So I think that journaling is a really safe place to do that if working with a therapist isn't available Mm -hmm. to you. Also, that just reminded me, as I was saying, paying attention to what's happening in your body, noticing your somatic physical response really can help you to slow down and get curious. Go, what is this? I feel like I'm panicking right now. And yet the world is fine. Like, I mean, the world is not fine. (laughs) But But you know what's so funny though? I feel like... And once again, it's like this narrative that I have about myself and I'm like finding the evidence to Uh like prove that narrative, right? And I've kind of gotten really good at like finding fuckboys apparently. But (laughs) at that, you know, like I almost feel like I am proven right all the time. Uh And it's almost like I purposely put myself in situations to prove, wow, that's deep. Yeah, it's like my belief of myself. I put myself in situations because that is all I think I deserve. That was a breakthrough. That's the truth. That's it. I don't know. For the most part, I think I would come off to most people as having it together and being secure, yet it's so bizarre that I would think I deserve anything less but like the best (laughs) in my romantic relationships. Yeah. You really think it's because of what I went through as a kid and that belief is just so strong and I haven't been able to fight that belief. Yeah. The the belief has... I think metastasized for, for lack of a better word. So that's like a fossil. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not a never, it's not a fossil. Sometimes it feels like it. It's like a hard rock that just will never, never change. (laughs) Well, as you have already noted, you have changed a lot and grown a lot. And that is very hopeful. And I would say that being able to just own, like my picker is broken. Like I've been looking for people who confirm this narrative, who match my blueprint. That is the first step. And then it's not crossing the street. It's going, I know you, I'm getting excited about you. I'm having a chemical reaction to you. This feels familiar. Again, that's how responding to what's happening in your body, paying attention to it can make a really big difference because you can go, what is this? This is familiar for you. That's probably a red flag. It certainly was for me. I had to do a lot of rewiring. And it's still, to this day, I will get drawn to people or situations that are toxic for me because they are familiar. And as my mentor says, just don't cross the street. Don't go towards them. Stay over here. Those people also tend to be super charismatic and shiny for some reason. <laughs> it's true. They really do. So we're looking for really boring people uh, who... <laughs> 
They come in all you different have no chemistry packages. with. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you can have great. You can chemistry. have it all. I can have it all. Yes. I can have chemistry. Yes, and they don't have to be toxic for me. Yes, cool. but you have to believe that you're worthy of it, and you have to notice those old pulls and turn the other way over and over and over again. It's a repetition. I mean, I had to learn this lesson. I don't know, forty times. Really, Damn. truly, it's a lot. That's it for today's episode of Eating in Isolation. Thanks for tuning in. Episodes out every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at Care of Chan. Email us questions and ideas at eatinginisolation at careofchan.com. To find Sarah, visit solomontherapy.com. And remember, you are not alone. <laughs>